The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. I'm going to pray too. <laughs> I'm feeling a little nervous. So, um, Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for being a God of hope. Um, a God we can trust. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reveal more of yourself today and that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So because our psalms today address deep emotions, I want to start by reading a passage from the introduction to the psalms in my ESV study Bible for you. It says, The Psalter is the songbook of the people of God in their gathered worship. These songs cover a wide range of experiences and emotions and give God's people the words to express these emotions and to bring these experiences before God. At the same time, the Psalms do not simply express emotions. When sung in faith, they actually shape the emotions of the godly. The emotions are therefore not a problem to be solved, but are part of the raw material of now fallen humanity that can be shaped to good and noble ends. The psalms as songs act deeply on the emotions for the good of God's people. It is not natural to trust God in hardship, and yet the psalms provide a way of doing just that and enable the singers to trust better as a result of singing them. This, my friends, is good news. Um, as most of you talked about earlier today, the com- most commentators agree that Psalm 42 and 43 were once an original song. They were once a single song. And we can see that because of the refrain in both of the psalms, but we can also see that because Psalm 43 only has a title. It doesn't have instruction. It doesn't have an author. And so um, that's, those are the two main reasons that um, most commentators say that they are a single song. Let's start by looking at the title of Psalm 42. It does say, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And then it says, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. While we don't know exactly what the term maskil means, most people assume that it is a musical or liturgical term. We see next that this psalm is written by the sons of Korah. 1 Chronicles 6 tells us that the sons of Korah were descended from Levi and were tasked by David to take charge of the service of the song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. We also need to know that these two psalms are part of the subgenre of the psalms of lament. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. There are over 60 psalms that are classified as laments. This is the largest subgenre of the book of Psalms. As one commentator says, in light of how much current Christian worship music ignores the difficulties of life, it is instructive to see the prominence that Psalms gives to speaking honestly about one's troubles to God. I just have one quick aside. We are blessed with our worship leaders. They take truth and they bring it before us so that we can worship God rightly. Let me go back. Um, So, but knowing that God has placed so many psalms in this book of 150, 60 of these are psalms of lament, doesn't that bring freedom and reassurance to know that our God, who's sovereign over the scriptures, placed so much emphasis on instructing us in how to cry out to him when we're in pain and turmoil? 
doesn't this fact point to his steadfast love and faithfulness for us? He's omniscient over everything, right? And he, know, he knew from the beginning of time what we would struggle with, the trials that we would face, and he took the care to provide for us the very means of expressing our hearts to him so that we could then in turn trust him more. He's worthy of our hope. He's worthy of our trust. Today I could stand before you and describe many moments in our past um, where things were dark, where I shed a lot of tears and questioned God's timing. I'm going to briefly just talk about a few of those. Um, Before Brian and I started dating, we both had seasons where one of us liked the other, but the feeling wasn't mutual. And I spent three years on the feeling wasn't mutual side. I liked Brian, but he didn't didn't, um, share my feelings. And those were dark hard times where I just questioned um, and felt a lot of heartbreak, and I'm sure some of you can um, understand that as well. When we were pregnant with Benjamin, the doctor told us that they saw something in his abdomen. Um, Those were dark days. Those were days filled with fear and anxiety, Um, just wondering what was was happening, nothing I could do to control um, or help my baby. And then most recently, last, last July, um, Brian's boss called him into his office and said something like, you've done nothing wrong, um, but the job that you're suited for might not be available for two to three years. So rather than allowing you to become bitter in your work, we're going to let you go now. And most of you know that Brian is still unemployed. Um, we still don't have work. There have been a lot of moments of anxiety There have been a lot of tears shed and just questioning. But I know that what we've experienced is small compared to what a lot of you have gone through. We've all had those moments, haven't we? Deep struggle, deep turmoil. Maybe you've experienced heartbreak or unemployment like us, but maybe it's been something more like you've lost a loved one way too soon. You've walked the path of infertility, miscarriage, scary complications during pregnancy, Maybe you're in a hard season of parenting that feels dark, hard, um, void of any fruit. Maybe you've battled cancer or someone you know has battled a tragic disease. Maybe you're just struggling with overwhelming anxiety or deep depression. Or maybe you're just really questioning who God is and if he's truly good. Does he really care? I know something's probably weighing on your heart, right? If not now, it has in the past or it will in the future, right? So what do we do? How do we respond in these situations? We read these psalms. God is good. We're going to look today at why the author is downcasting his soul and how he responds. Because we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, we can let these psalms guide our own responses to darkness. First, today we're going to look quickly to see context. What's the author experiencing? Why is he downcast? And then we'll go back to see how he responds. Let's read the first two verses of 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This image of a deer panting and searching for life-sustaining water paints a vivid picture of how deeply the author feels his need for God. We have to remember that many areas surrounding Israel were dry and arid, desert-like wilderness. 
After God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, they spent some time wandering around in the wilderness, right? They complained about many things, but on one occasion they cried out to God because they couldn't find water. So what did God do? He miraculously provided water from rock. Why? Well, one, we know to show that he's God, right? And that he's the one who provides for our needs. But two, he provided water from a rock because there wasn't water anywhere else. This picture of a dry place would have really resonated with the original audience. This man was beyond thirsty for God. He was dehydrated, lips cracked, limp from the lack of presence of his God. Our understanding of this longing is deepened as we read verses 3 and 4. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Quick drink. Sorry about that. We see that the author spends his days and nights crying and in deep sadness. Those around him are asking, where is your God? And just like a lot of you came to the understanding, we do believe that he is surrounded by people who don't worship his God. One of the commentaries I used to study for this said that atheism wasn't commonplace until the time of Greek philosophy, which would be years in the future. Um, So this means that the question, where is your God, isn't questioning God's presence. I'm sorry, it isn't questioning God's, um, lost my spot, existence, yes. Rather, it's taunting him and saying that God has seemingly abandoned him. Next, we see that the author pours out his soul. We also see similar responses like this in the book of Job. As the author here pours out his soul, he remembers times past when he was able to lead and join in worship with fellow believers. He remembers these things because he longs to be there, and for some reason, he just can't. We don't know exactly why he can't, but he's not able to worship at the temple. We need to remember a couple of things here. We need to remember what the temple was, where it was, and how it functioned in Old Testament worship. Without going into a lot of detail, we know that there were many rules and regulations regarding how one must worship God, and they all centered around offering sacrifices in the temple where people experience God's presence. While the author knows that he can pray to God anywhere, he also knows that the temple is where he most fully connects with God. He is longing to worship God again. We also need to remember that the author is a son of Korah, And his job was to lead worship in the temple. Look again at what he remembers in verse 4. And lead them in procession to the house of God. So when we look at these first four verses together, we can see that this man is an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. He's unable to worship in the temple where he can truly meet with God. He's surrounded by people who worship false gods. And he is a worship leader who's unable to fulfill his ordained job. In essence, he's spiritually shaken. He's feeling far away from God and desperate to be at home again in the temple. This is a very dry season for him, and so it's no wonder that he says he's downcast and in turmoil. But there's more. Skip down to verse 6, and we see that he says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon from Mount Nazar. We see here that he truly is far from home. 
we know that the temple is in Jerusalem. So I'm going to show you my map here. Pretend that your hand is a map of Israel. Um, Jerusalem is in the center, right here of my palm. The end of the Jordan River is about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. And then all the way clear up at the top of your finger is where the Jordan River starts. And this is where Mount Hermon is. And they, know, they don't really know what Mount Mazar was, but they're assuming that it was a smaller mountain in the range of Mount Hermon. So I did a search to see how far was Mount Hermon from Jerusalem. And by today's terrains and, um, and roads, it is about 118 miles um, away. That's a very long journey today, let alone going by foot or by donkey. So the author is far from home. We don't know why he's there. He, we don't really know when this, this psalm was written, so we don't know if he was there because he's in exile or, um, or for another reason. But we do know that his situation is very oppressive, and it's too much for him. Let's look at verse 7. It says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The author describes both the roar and crashing of waterfalls and waves crashing against a beach. But we can see that both of these leave a sense of unrest and chaos, a feeling of deep overwhelming or drowning as the weight of the author's trials just crash down on him again and again. This image of sorrow and trials crashing like raging water stands in stark contrast to what he desires in verse one, those gentle flowing streams. Unfortunately, there's still more causing him to despair. Look now at verses 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And look down at 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. This man is also oppressed because of the, is downcast because of the oppression of an enemy who taunts him, asking why his God has not yet come to his rescue. The language of 43.1, vindicate and defend my cause, lead us to think that the author is wrongly accused and the oppression is unjustified. And when he refers to the enemy as ungodly, deceitful, and unjust, we again see that he is probably surrounded by unbelievers. The author feels this oppression to his bones, to his very core, and it makes him feel like he's been forgotten and rejected by God as his prayers go seemingly unanswered. To say this man is downcast is an understatement. He's deeply depressed. He's far from home and unable to meet with God fully. He's spiritually shaken and dry. He's overwhelmed by his circumstances and his sorrow, and he's wrongfully oppressed by the enemy. We can surely relate to some of this, right? And if we haven't yet, someday we will. We're going to read now um, to see how he responds to that turmoil and to find encouragement to respond rightly to our own circumstances. I think we can see that he responds in four ways. He prays. He preaches to himself. He remembers his God, and he hopes in a God who is worthy of his trust. And as we watch him respond in these ways, we can see that his responses are rooted in God, in God's unchanging character. Let's look again 
at Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We see in the first verse that the author is addressing his God. How does he respond to being downcast? He prays. But it's a soul-wrenching prayer. Psalm 42 is full of honest, raw emotion cried out from the depths of despair and turmoil. And it begins here for a deep longing for the living God. The very act of praying to God implies that the author trusts him and believes in him. The author also knows that God alone can satisfy his deep longings. Notice how the author calls God the living God. Living means the condition of being alive and implies active. The God this author serves is alive, and he's active on behalf of his people and for his own glory. This stands in stark contrast to the false gods of the nations surrounding Israel and also the people who are currently taunting the author. We see God referred to in this way in other areas of the Bible. Joshua refers to the living God when he tells the Israelites right before they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the land of promise. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the nations living in the land. When the feet of the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stepped into the Jordan River, the Lord caused the waters to pile up in a heap on either side, and the people crossed over on dry land. Another reference to the living God can be found in Daniel 6. After the king has seen that Daniel's God has rescued him from the mouth of the lions, he declares that all people under his dominion are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, be to, shall have no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The situation in Daniel shows the difference between the God of Israel and the gods of the nations around him. He is active on behalf of his people. He delivers them. It is for this mighty God that the author longs, and it is to him that he prays. And because of who God is, this is a worthwhile response to turmoil. Let's continue with verses 3 and 4. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. As the author continues to pray, he laments his situation. He gives full vent to his emotions and struggles, pouring out his soul. This is natural, right? When something's just, just distressing, it makes sense to describe our grief and our pain. As we hear the author pouring out his soul, we can see some painful contrasts. As one commentator states, the author longs, in verse 1, to be sustained by the flowing streams of God's presence, but instead his tears are his food day and night. These constant, lonely tears deeply contrast with the glad shouts and songs of praise he remembers from past festivals celebrated with throngs and multitudes in the temple. His prayer has drifted to sad remembering, and unfortunately it's plunged him into deeper despair. But this leads him to respond in another way. In verse 5, we see the refrain, and we see the author preaching to himself. In essence, he's talking to himself in an encouraging way, 
to remind himself of truth in the midst of despair. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He doesn't let his feelings of deep depression take over. Instead, he turns to encouraging himself. Now, this doesn't mean that he's trying to pull himself up out of turmoil in his own strength. He knows, he's remembering, he's reminding himself of where his hope lies. It isn't in himself, it's in his God. We've already seen that he trusts in the living God. This means that he knows that God is the only one in whom true hope lies. We see in this verse that he also knows that God is his salvation and his God. While today the word salvation carries the weight of Christ's work on the cross, saving us from our sins, in the Old Testament it often meant saving God's people from their enemies or from their current struggle. But even so, the author sees that God is his only hope of rescue and help. Next, we see that he calls God, my God. I love this. It seems, it seems to be an answer to the question, where is your God? He's my God, right? And in verse, in verse 3, while the author feels far from God, he still clings to what he knows. God is not a distant God that cannot be known by his people. He is a personal God that the author can know and love and trust. This is the God who saves him and will, who, who will again bring him out of his despair and to a place where he can again trust him. In this ref refrain, we see a response worth repeating. He continues throughout the psalm to preach to himself. He tells his mind to speak to his heart. He's not destined to this despair forever. He can hope in God, for he shall again praise him. We can see in 6 and 7 that preaching to himself has done some good, while he's still downcast, his focus is beginning to shift. He remembers his God. Verse 6 and 7 says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Just like Sloan said in verse 6, we see the word therefore. Because my soul is downcast, I remember you. Remembering times past from the temple was not good enough to lift the author out of his depression. Preaching to himself has helped him shift his focus to God, and now he needs to remember who his God is. Strangely, the next verse shifts back to describing the author's turmoil. We see a frightening image of drowning in the sea and beneath a waterfall to show the level of overwhelm he feels. But as our study guide points us, we see that these waterfalls, breakers, and waves belong to God. Your breakers, your waves. He knows that God is sovereign. Just as we saw last week in Ginger's Psalm, God is powerful over all creation. Everything belongs to him. He's sovereign over all the happenings of our lives. Because he is sovereign and because he is good, we can trust him even in the midst of deep turmoil, terror, or sorrow. This verse feels like rock bottom, doesn't it? He is at his lowest here. But even while he is praying, God answers. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In this verse, we see God answering his cry from verse 1. In response to his day and night tears in verse 3, we see that God is commanding his steadfast love by day and giving the author his song by night. 
But here we also see a change in how the author talks about God. Here he uses Lord instead of God. Remember what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, that Lord in all capital letters is the translation of the proper name of God, Yahweh, the God of covenant, the God who keeps his promises to his people. And remember, too, from last week that we talked about the steadfast love of God being that special, unfailing covenant love of God for his people. By day, like Mallory said, this God of covenant commands his steadfast love. Command means to ordain or give an authoritative order. Last week, we saw that God spoke all things into existence. By a simple word, God set stars and planets into their places. His word is obeyed. Here he not only speaks, he commands his steadfast love to be with the author. This isn't a passive, wimpy, random love that falls on the author. This is an unfailing love from a sovereign, promise-keeping God bestowed with authority upon one of God's chosen people. God's steadfast love is with the author by day, and his song is with him by night. We talked a little bit about this, that the second line means that during the night, the author thinks about God. He sings to him and prays to him. God answers the author's cry and causes him to remember God and his unchanging character. And it's this remembering God that turns his, his spirits. It's the turning point of these psalms. Now let's read verses 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This doesn't seem quite right, does it? The author has just sung of God's covenant love and faithfulness. He's just said that God is with him by day and by night. And in the next line, he asks, why have you forgotten me? We can see a contrast here. And that contrast shows that there's a disconnect between his head and his heart. There's a disconnect between what he knows to be true and how he feels. He knows in his head that God is faithfully with him, but his circumstances make him feel otherwise. The difference between this section and the first is that the author has remembered his God. He again turns to God in prayer. He is not simply mourning or describing his turmoil. He is crying out to God in the midst of it. He says, God, my rock. While God felt absent in the first stanza, he remembers that he is his rock, firm, faithful, in the midst of the crashing waves around him. He feels so, I'm sorry, his his situation is still dire, so much so that he describes it as a deadly wound in his bones. He feels it to his very core, but remembering God has reminded him to turn to him again in prayer. And we see here what kind of prayer. He asks God hard questions. He's undeniably honest with God as he wrestles with the disconnect between what he knows to be true and how he feels. I think the refrain again is a good response to this. He's preaching truth to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Like we talked about last week, the Old Testament believers did not have ready access to the Bible like we do today. So when a speaker or an author repeated something, it said to the audience, pay attention, this is important. We know, too, that this is a song that's meant to be sung. So this refrain, this truth bears repeating, hope in God, he is my salvation and my God. 
And now we start Psalm 43, and we can see the last stanza of this song, that there is a, a definite shift. It's in this psalm that we see that the author's faith and hope has taken root, and his gaze is shifted back to God. He's remembered his God, the living God, the faithful God, the God full of steadfast love. He's the God of his salvation. And remembering him and preaching to himself has given birth to hope. Remember that hope is a confident, expectant waiting for God to act, and hope is rooted in God's faithfulness. The author's last response is his greatest. It is to hope in a God worthy of his trust. Let's read 43, 1 through 2. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? It is here, after the wrestling, the preaching, the remembering, the pouring out of his soul, that the author finally makes his requests of God. In all of Psalm 42, he didn't ask God. He was pouring out his heart. He's reminding himself of truth. He's remembering who God is. And because he can trust God, he can trust, because he can trust God, he can ask him to come to his defense. He asks God to vindicate him and defend his cause, to deliver him from the oppression of the enemies around him, and he can hope and trust in God to act on his behalf. Then in verses 3 and 4, we see, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. The author's second request like Bobby Jean talked about, is for God to send out his light and his truth. Light and truth, again, show contrast. In the previous stanzas, the author is in the darkness of despair, and he is wrongfully oppressed by his enemies. He is asking here for God to send his light and truth to redeem and free him from his current situation. He is asking that God bring him back to the temple, back to his presence, where he can fully praise him. This is his greatest desire. Or in the first stanza, remembering the temple plunged him into a deeper despair, he is now joyfully anticipating the answer to that prayer. Look at the way the author builds his anticipation. First, he talks about the holy hill on which the temple is built. Then he moves to the temple itself, the dwelling place of the living God. Next, to the altar of God, which is inside the temple, and finally to God himself. In stark contrast to the depths of despair and sadness he has been expressing, he now cherishes the hope of again being in the presence of his God, his exceeding joy. And it is in this joyful, expectant hope that the author ends with the final refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. His situation hasn't changed. He is not yet Back home in the temple, there is still turmoil and struggle, but there is hope. His perspective is, has changed. He's remembering his God, and because he remembers God, he can hope. His gaze is lifted to him. His situation hasn't changed, but neither has his God. He serves a God worthy of his trust. He serves a faithful, firm, saving God full of steadfast love. He serves the living God. And so do we, right? So do we. 
so when we find ourselves in similar situations, we can let this psalm, these psalms be our guide. Not if, but when, right? When we find ourselves struggling, we should pray. Remember that the Bible is the inspired word of God. These are God's words. He himself laid them on the heart of the author. In Psalm 62, 8, we read, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Just like the author, we should feel the freedom to be real with God. We can pour out our hearts. We can weep at his feet. We can ask him the hard questions. We can ask him to deliver and provide, to give us what we need. First Peter says, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. And when you can't find the words, cling to the Psalms. Remember, they were given to us as a very means of expressing our hearts to God. What else can we do? We should long for God above all else. Let him be your greatest desire. It's easy for us to set our hope on the answer to our prayer rather than in the one who is answering it. Over the last several months of employment, of unemployment, my constant prayer has been, Lord, give Brian a job. Provide for us as only you can, but don't let us just settle for a job. Give us more of you, right? We need more of God. Yes, a job gives us the physical things that we need, but God knows that what we really need is more of him. And isn't that what he wants us to have? Isn't it in these dark moments that we see our deep need for God? He shows us who he is. I think this is sometimes why we struggle, why God causes turmoil to point us to him, right? When you're in the midst of turmoil, we should also remember who God is and preach to ourselves. Remind yourself of truth. Remind yourself of who God is and what he's promised to you. Not shallow promises, not even promises of an answered prayer, but promises to be with us, to not leave or forsake us. When there's a disconnect between what you know in your head and what you feel in your heart, remember and preach. But don't wait until the next season of darkness. Ask God now to send light and truth to you. Soak in the light and truth of scripture now. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays for his disciples saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We see that God has given us his Bible, his word as light and truth to lead us into his presence. By soaking in the truth of scripture now, you are equipping your heart to remember and preach truth to yourself when you need it most. One of the things that Brian and I have determined to do for our family while our kids are young is to memorize scripture and theologically rich hymns. We don't know what the future holds for us or for them, but when darkness does threaten to overcome, we want them to have the weapons of scripture and truth with which to fight. The Holy Spirit has often used his word to comfort my own soul, and so I pray that he does that for our kids too. But like the author, I want you to remember that we aren't alone. Yes, there will be times, like Mallory said, when we're far away, but we have community for a reason. We're not to struggle in isolation, right? So don't just preach to yourself and remember yourself. Share your struggles with others. Let others preach to you. Let them help you remember 
We have a good church body. We have good friends, right? Family to lean on. And lastly, hope in a God who's worthy of your trust. Hope in the living God who sees you and knows your pain and hears your prayers. Hope in the God of steadfast covenant love who promises to be with you wherever you go, to never leave or forsake you. And hope in a God who promises that all things work together for his good, for your good, for his glory. Hope in the God who delivers, who saves. You see, even though this current trial or despair seems all-encompassing, we have a greater need, right? And God in his steadfast love has set us free from the worst possible darkness, the darkness of our bondage to sin. He sent Jesus, the ultimate light and truth, to bring us into his presence and fullness of joy. John 1.5 says of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And in John 14.6, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Through Jesus, we can walk out of the darkness of sin and into God's presence. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we see that we are not only in God's presence, we are the temple of God and his presence dwells within us. While the author of Psalms 42 and 43 had to wait to be in the fullness of God's presence in the temple, in Jesus we have light and truth and the forever presence of God dwelling in us. And in Jesus we also know that this world and its trials are not the end. We can look forward with hope of being in God's presence for eternity in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3-7 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The darkness and the despair that we feel now prove that this world is broken by sin. And our sin separates us from God, both the original sin of Adam and Eve, but also the sin that we were born into and the sin that we choose. We are by nature rebellious and intent on our way. We're also that by choice, right? Our sin separates us from God, but in his steadfast love, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He took all of the guilt and the wrath and the shame of our sins on himself, and by his death, he defeated our sin, and three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over darkness and death, and if we believe in his saving death and resurrection, and confess our need for him, we will be rescued from sin and death. We will be saved to life and light and lasting hope in God. Lasting hope that cries out in the midst of turmoil, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let me end by reading to you the words of the hymn in Christ alone. It's the hymn that we began to teach our kids just this past week. And as I sang it to them for the first time, I was really struck by how it's a perfect response to these psalms today. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. 
this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for being sovereign. We thank you for being good. We thank you for your steadfast love and that we can hope in you. Help us, Lord, to hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.